The Ending the HIV Epidemic, or EHE, initiative aims to reduce new HIV infections in the U.S. by 90% by 2030. This aim will be achieved by equitably and collaboratively delivering care and focusing resources on communities most affected by HIV, including those in southern and rural areas. I'm Dr. Charles Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Irvine Department of Family Medicine. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Dr. Leandro Mena, who is a CDC Let's Stop HIV Together Clinical Ambassador. He is also the Chair and Professor of the Department of Population Health Science at the University of Mississippi and Director for their Center of HIV AIDS Research. Today we will discuss the second part of our podcast series produced in partnership with the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign, a part of the National Ending the HIV Epidemic, again EHE, initiative. The focus of today's discussion is how to provide culturally competent and collaborative care using the four EHE strategies, diagnose, treat, prevent, and respond. So let's get underway. Uh, Dr. Mena, again, pleasure to speak with you today. Um, it's a remarkable month. Uh, this month marks the four, that marks 40 years since the first report of uh, what we now know as HIV. Uh, then uh, it was called AIDS in the CDC's Morbidity and uh, Mortality Weekly Report Journal. Um, how have you seen the epi epidemic change throughout your career? Uh, well, thank you. Thank you, first of all, you know, for having me. Um, uh, you know, it, it's been amazing. I mean, to think, you know, that about, you know, how, you know, things were, you know, 40 years ago. And for the first, you know, perhaps, you know, a decade, decade and a half of this epidemic where, you know, so many people, so many young people, you know, died, you know, because of this disease for which we didn't have, you know, effective, you know, treatment. And then there was a time where treatment was available, but this treatment sometimes was actually worse, you know, than, than or as bad sometimes, you know, as the disease itself. You know, I, I remember I came to practice, uh, start training in 1996. So it was around the time that um, combination uh, antiretroviral therapy was available. Uh, but many of these medications had tremendous side effects, you know, and I remember telling my patients something that I think is horrible, right? I used to tell them, Sometimes, you know, when they were telling me that we're feeling really bad, you know, sometimes, you know, feeling bad some days is the price that you have to pay to feel well, you know, most days. And I think in back, you know, you know, how horrible, you know, that was, right? You know, the trade-off that people have to have in order to live, you know, and to where we then jump starting to jump to where we are now, where we have, you know, tremendous therapeutic options, you know, for HIV. Uh, we have uh, treatment regimens that are easy to take, uh, uh, as simple as one pill once a day, uh, soon, you know, to become uh, uh, the possibility of uh, one injection once a month or once every other month, potentially, uh, to regimens that in general are very easy to tolerate, but also are so potent uh, that have allowed, you know, now to individuals who are living with HIV to really have a life expectancy close to what is, you know, for individuals who are not living with HIV. So again, it has been a tremendous progress. Um, and although there are important gaps, I think the progress has been tremendous. Uh, 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 not to, I'll be remiss, you know, if I don't mention, you know, that for the past, you know, almost 10 years, you know, we have a pill, you know, that people can take that can, prevent HIV, you know, think about that, you know, and, and, and how, you know, in the 90s, you know, early 2000s, you know, how that kind of, uh, those kind of tools, you know, would have totally changed the trajectory of this epidemic. Those are great points and, and great job illustrating just how, how far we've come. 
Um, you know, so you're an ambassador for the CDC, but you're, you're also an ambassador for your region. And in the South, in the Southern United States, um, we know that the, the rates of new cases of HIV um, have not declined to the same level that they have in other parts of uh, the United States. Can you talk about how HIV affects populations in, in the South and in rural areas in general? Sure. You know, uh, we know the South is, uh, in terms of uh, geographic areas, is disproportionately affected by HIV. The South, the South has, you know, 38% of the U.S. population, yet about 50, a little bit over 50% of all new HIV cases happen in the South. Um, in the South, uh, Black and Latinos are disproportionately affected by HIV. African Americans uh, and youth are disproportionately affected by HIV. And there are a number of factors that contribute to this. I mean, the South um, it has, you know, still dealing with this long history of uh, racism and discrimination that, um, and, and that disproportionately, you know, a, a, that creates vulnerabilities, you know, in communities of color, um, the poverty. Um, the poor health literacy, the fact that so many southern states have not expanded Medicaid, and that the high uh, uh, proportion of the population who are uninsured, and the impact of not having health insurance, you know, in people's uh, ability to access, you know, HIV services from testing to prevention to treatment, um, manifest in our region in a particular way. So you have to think about, you know, how those rural communities look like. You know, the Mississippi Delta, uh, where transportation is difficult, where uh, with uh, diseases, you know, the disease that is so stigmatizing, like HIV, uh, with the um, aggressive homophobia, you know, that exists, you know, in our region, you know, in part because of the uh, very conservative, you know, culture. Um, how, you know, individuals who live in those rural communities, you know, are so vulnerable, you know, to the support that they may derive, you know, from their families and their communities. And so difficult it is, you know, uh, because of their gender identity or sexual orientation that they um, uh, may lose, you know, this support. Uh, it really keeps, you know, people away from accessing services, you know, unless they feel that they are confidential, unless they feel that they are, you know, a, 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 their privacy, you know what I mean, is going to be assured. And that's very difficult to do in our region. So, again, there are many, many factors, uh, and we can spend the whole, you know, a, a whole day and beyond uh, discussing them. Uh, but definitely, you know, uh, the rurality of the South, um, the, um, uh, the poverty, you know, the larger, you know, proportion of African-Americans, you know, that live in the South, really uh, add additional complex of uh, to to how to our approach of uh, ending the HIV epidemic in our region. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty comprehensive review and, and a lot of daunting problems there. But you should really be applauded because you're not just talking about these issues; you're actually doing something about it. You founded the first LGBT clinic in Mississippi called Open Arms Healthcare Center. Can you describe why it was so important for you to start this clinic and how it's improved access to care? Yeah, you know, in 2000, um, 2008, 7, 2007, we, like many places in the country, right, we start noticing an increase in the case of HIV among young black men who are with men. And we actually, you know, had the a, a opportunity to work with CDC through an epidemiologic, you know, aid uh, with the health department to do a case control study uh, to try to understand why young black MSM, you know, were being diagnosed with HIV what, and to appear a high rate 
than other individuals. And through that case control study, one thing that kind of resonated in me is that among individuals who, uh, among, among individuals, it was among young black MSM age uh, 18 to 25 years old, and among individuals who did not have a, a primary care provider, right? They were uh, four times more likely to be diagnosed with HIV. But then among individuals who had a primary care provider, but didn't disclose their behavior, you know, the sexual behavior to the provider, they were almost eight times or at least eight times more likely to be diagnosed with HIV. So as a healthcare provider, that really resonated in me. And it became evident back in the 2007, 2008, uh, that if we were going to address, you know, the HIV epidemic, we really needed, you know, to create, you know, access to health services, you know, where people were comfortable disclosing these behaviors, especially for black men and men that at that time, you know, were really the focus of this uh, investigation. But also the clinicians, you know, once people overcome the challenges of having to tell a doctor, yeah, answers with men or I'm gay or I'm bi, right? Clinicians needed to be prepared to address the health needs of those individuals. So again, you know, at that time, you know, I felt there was an opportunity to work with the community, community-based organizations who I knew in many ways had the, the, the enjoy the trust of the community in a way that very, very often academic health centers don't, you know, and we together, you know, came up with this concept of open arms healthcare center that really was a community informed. You know, the community diversity organization set up focus groups, you know, with a gay, black, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals in Jackson, asked them, you know, what kind of services they were looking for, how this clinic should look like, what is the name? I mean, the community named the clinic, you know, Open Arms, right? So, so everything was really, in many ways, a, the community deciding how they wanted to receive the care that they needed. That sounds like a, a very organic um, and community-centered process, which is outstanding, and, and that's, I, I'm sure, has factored a ton into the success of Open Arms Healthcare Center. You know, we don't all work in a, uh, a center with a focus on the LGBT population, so what can you tell, you know, the clinician, you know, working in outpatient settings about culturally responsive HIV prevention, particularly for black men who have sex with men who are suffering uh, disparities when it comes to the prevalence of HIV? You know, that, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, I, I do a lot of uh, education on LGBT cultural competency, and I always start telling people that, you know, being LGBT cultural competent, right, is it, not rocket science. I mean, it's about, you know, making sure that you are treating all your patients, I mean, with respect, you know, that you're being, you know, empathic and empathetic, you know, as you talk to people, that you are curious and you ask questions where you don't know. And then, you know, because um, LGBTQ, you know, gender sexual minority populations are affected by so many health disparities, it's important that you are aware of which, what are these disparities, right? So you can address them as part of your uh, delivering healthcare. I mean, you can't ignore the fact that individuals who, you know, a, a, a report to you having sex with men, you know I mean, regardless of how they identify, are a high risk of STIs and HIV. And HIV testing, you know, is something that you should be doing, you know, routinely in everyone, but much more often, you know, in people who, because of their, you know, uh, sex of their partners and sexual orientation, perhaps may be a higher risk. Um, you want to make sure that you're aware, again, of the disparities that exist in the substance use disorder, mental health, um, obesity, you know, a, a, 
alcohol use, I mean, uh, tobacco use. So again, so you can screen for those things. So again, taking care of LGBT people is really, you know, taking care of people without prejudice, you know what I mean? And being aware of uh, uh, which are the disparities that affect this population. So to make sure that you don't miss, you know, a screening or looking for things that may be important, you know, to really be a, a provide effective primary prevention. I, I really like that approach, um, you know, starting with the patient and, you know, try to provide them the health equity that uh, he, she, or they need. Um, and then moving beyond that, thinking about the social determinants of health, their, their comorbid conditions, other things that are affecting their overall well-being and, and doing our best to, uh, to address those as well. But I think one thing that, um, that in my urban center, um, we don't see quite as much as, as you might experience in your, in your rural area is a direct impact of the stigma um, regarding um, being LGBT or, um, ha or living with HIV uh, in that more folks might know about the diagnosis. These communities are, are oftentimes in rural areas, more close-knit where everybody knows about each other's business. Um, so how can clinicians overall, but particularly in those rural settings, normalize HIV testing, prevention, and treatment? Uh, because I'm sure that is something of an impediment when you, we first initiate care with patients um, that they may have uh, some real concerns about. No, it, that's an interesting question. I mean, and again, you know, clinicians, you know, have a role to play, but I think we all, you know, all the community has a role to play. I mean, because the question is, I mean, you have to think about why, you know, why, what are the consequences, right, to people should others find out about their sexual orientation or their HIV status? And why, you know, and why those consequences, you know, continue to be real out there, you know, it's very difficult to really be able to convince someone to come out and to be open both about sexual orientation and the status. But I think as a clinicians, you know, we have a tremendous opportunity to educate, you know, our patients, to empower them. You know, routinizing HIV testing is a tremendous way to really give access, you know, a, a, to, to, to both the prevention, you know, and the treatment continuum of care with HIV. Um, I, I encourage, you know, primary care providers, you know, to do HIV testing, you know, in every patient that they see for the first time, you know, and, and this is something that we do, you know, as a, something that they do in every single person regardless. I mean, CDC recommends HIV testing be done in anyone who's 13 to 64 years old. I will argue that you shouldn't stop at 64 because people don't stop having sex because they're 64 years old. But um, a, a, for individuals who uh, may have, you know, a, a, whose sexual behavior you know, maybe um, such, you know, that they may require more frequent testing, then you should do more frequent testing. But, but I cannot imagine anyone taking care of a patient without thinking about, you know, what's the HIV status of this person? You know, a headache, a mild headache, you know, is interpreted in a different kind of way if that person is HIV positive versus a person being HIV negative. So again, routine HIV, HIV testing should be continued, routine. The second thing is that, as you think about, you know, we tend to, we, clinicians, you know, very often have very little training uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, sexual health and uh, when it comes to dealing with sexual intermarriages, you know. So it's important to make sure that you get the education and the information that you need so you can provide the services that people need. And uh, for individuals who are HIV negative, um, if, you know, they have indications for PrEP, and I'm saying indications because I'm trying to avoid the word risk, you know, I hate the word risk and how it gets operationalized that very often allows 
allows us clinicians to exclude people, but allows you know our patients to exclude themselves from the potential to benefit from testing and uh, and prevention. Um, I say you know for people who have you know indications for prep, then prep should be offered to them. And for individuals who actually you know end up testing positive for HIV, then treatment should be offered to them right away. Um, whether you know in prep or in prevention, people need to be supported um, so they can you know continue taking for test for prep for treatment you know for as long as they live until we have you know a cure for HIV and for prevention for as long as they need it. Those are excellent points and you know it strikes me that you know with your approach where you're you're focused on HIV as as a you know important health issue both for the community and you know for public health but also for the individual you know say with a headache um, and you start uh, the routine screening for all individuals um, to get HIV testing, which is uh, part of CDC uh, you know, recommendations overall for adults. Uh, you know, if you have 90% of the uh, community uh, tested, stigma will decrease because everybody's getting tested. It's, it's clearly part of a standard now and part of a routine. And I think that in terms of the diagnosis and prevention will, will play important roles. Um, we we have right now this this pandemic that we're dealing with. It's it's advanced a lot of different uh, types of care. Say telehealth has has increased a lot. Um, you know we're using vaccines in, in different ways and to a scale that heretofore we've we've never been able to do before. You know, what do you see for the future of HIV care when we think about the HIV epidemic initiative and its um, its goal to reduce the uh, the rate of new HIV infections by ninety percent. You know, what, how are we going to be able to to accomplish that goal moving forward? You know, I, I think it's a it's a daunting task. You know, I think that one that is possible is certainly we have the tools. I think we have to be very you know creative and innovative in how we think about a total different approach into delivering you know these tools to the population that need them. I think that if you look back to what we have been able to do until now, there has been some progress, but certainly the progress that we have had by no means is at the rate that needs to uh, that we need to that needs to be in order for us you know to achieve the EHE goal of uh, decreasing HIV infections by 75% you know in 5 years and by 90% in 10 years so i think that we need to you know uh, 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 each community right you know every epidemic you know is a little bit different so each community needs to sit down you know and really in you know, as they're doing many of them right and really you know think in the context what are the challenges i mean that we have as a community to be able to make sure that we routinize hiv testing to make sure that everyone who can benefit from prep can be on prep and can be supported to make sure that everyone who has hiv can you know have access to medication and stay on medication so and as we and so those barriers are identified by this by each community then strategies need to be customized you know to the to the circumstances and to the resources available in those communities to address those problems. Yeah, and it sounds like we would need some more resources because I, I love that approach because it, it takes a, a local perspective into a, a national and international um, severe health uh, issue. Um, but but it, I don't think we were, you know, at least where we are in California, probably I doubt you are in Mississippi as well, you know, to the point where we have those adequate resources where we can uh, go out and you know, do that inquiry and form those solutions on an everyday basis. 
Um, and, and so therefore, you know, it's, it's left up to the clinician. I, I think you've given us a, a lot to think about today and some really great strategies and techniques uh, to provide uh, the right kind of care to reduce the overall burden of HIV in our communities. But it's an ongoing issue. And as you said, it's, it's an iterative process um, with patient, community, and clinician. You know, what about some resources that primary care clinicians uh, can use uh, as we start to think about uh, reducing the burden of HIV in prevention, screening, treatment, and even specialty care? Oh, absolutely. I know. I think as a clinician, so we, we have an obligation to get educated and, uh, and develop the skills that can help support you know, the pillars of the HIV epidemic. I mean, how to diagnose people, how to treat people you know, better, how to prevent, you know, help to prevent HIV infection. And the CDC, you know, has this amazing campaign, Let's Stop HIV Together, that offers, you know, free resources and tools that focus on HIV testing, treatment, stigma, and prevention for both general audiences and clinical audiences. Um, they are available at cdc.gov slash stop HIV together. Uh, that's a website uh, that can be visited. And, uh, and there's also um, a pretty, you know, spectacular, you know, a, 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 a website called HIV Nexus that provide clinicians with the latest scientific evidence, guidelines, and resources on screening for HIV, pre-exposure prophylaxis, post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, treatment as prevention, information, and then additional resources you know, for specialty care, such as transgender health. So I encourage you, uh, clinicians you know, who are interested in learning more about it, who are interested, who recognize you know, their responsibility on contributing you know, to ending HIV epidemic in their communities, to visit to visit the cdc.gov slash HIV slash clinicians slash index HTLME, which is the HIV Nexus website for additional information and training opportunities. Wow, that's fantastic and, and great to have those resources in our back pocket. Uh, Dr. Mena, your passion, your skill clearly show through. Thank you so much for joining me uh, during this presentation and uh, thank you to our audience as well. I hope you found it uh, relevant and uh, helpful to your practice. Um, this is the final episode of the Let's Stop HIV Together and PrimeMed podcast series. Um, as Dr. Mania mentioned, you can visit PrimeMed's website or cdc.gov stophivtogether for HIV resources and information. Be well and thank you. <laughs>